Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Leviticus chapter 18. Probably after Leviticus 16, Leviticus 18 is the chapter that modern-day Christians are most familiar with. That's partly due to the subject matter and partly due to the fact that this chapter is cited and referred to multiple times in the New Testament. We'll deal with each verse and each issue as it arises, and then near the end we'll spend a few minutes talking about law in general and moral law in particular. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. I mentioned in the introduction that Leviticus 18 is cited several times in the New Testament. Well, this verse, verse 5, is cited three times in the New Testament, once by Jesus and twice by the Apostle Paul. We'll get to verse 5 in just a minute. The key idea here in this introductory paragraph is that the God who saves you gets to make the rules for your life. God brought the people out of Egypt. They entered into covenant relationship with him. He is the Lord, their God. Therefore, they need to behave in particular ways. In a sense, this is very similar to the preamble to the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. So, as God's people, having been saved by his mercy and grace, they must now learn to live and walk in a whole new way. And this new way is explicitly not like the way of the Egyptians. Just like they needed to leave behind the pagan worship practices that we talked about in the last chapter, practices they learned in Egypt, so too they need to leave behind the corrupt moral practices that had been common in Egypt. The God of the Bible has a specific moral code. And as verse 5 says, if you follow that code, you will have life. Now, as I mentioned, that verse is cited multiple times in the New Testament. Given what we're going to encounter at the end of this chapter in the last seven verses, the most likely meaning of that phrase is life in the land. If the people of Israel live according to God's specific commandments, they will live in the land and enjoy its many blessings. But if they adopt the lifestyle of their Egyptian past or their Canaanite neighbors, then they will experience death and exile. So verse 5 is not teaching a works-based salvation. These people are already redeemed, but it is teaching that to enjoy the blessings of God, we must learn to walk in his ways. And that includes the ways of God with respect to human sexuality. We begin to hear about that in verse 6. None of you shall approach any one of his close relatives to uncover nakedness. I am the Lord. 
Now, just a quick word about this language and these regulations. To uncover nakedness is, of course, a euphemism for to have sexual relations. So these regulations are doing two things. They are most immediately defining the limits within which a man may seek a wife, and they are addressing prohibited forms of sexuality generally. And so later on, these laws will address more than just male-to-female relationships. Verse 7. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father, which is the nakedness of your mother. She is your mother. You shall not uncover her nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife. It is your father's nakedness. So to apply what we've just said, a man may not marry his mother or his stepmother, nor may he engage in sexual activity with his mother or stepmother. It is verse 8 which comes into play in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. The man there was having sex with his stepmother. And we note there that even though Christians are not under the Mosaic law, they nevertheless observe the same moral norms. Thanks be to God. Verse 9. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your sister, your father's daughter, or your mother's daughter, whether brought up in the family or in another home. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your son's daughter or of your daughter's daughter, for their nakedness is your own nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife's daughter brought up in your father's family, since she is your sister. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's sister. She is your father's relative. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your mother's sister, for she is your mother's relative. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's brother, that is, you shall not approach his wife, she is your aunt. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your daughter-in-law, she is your son's wife, you shall not uncover her nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your brother's wife, it is your brother's nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of a woman and of her daughter, and you shall not take her son's daughter or her daughter's daughter to uncover her nakedness. They are relatives. It is depravity. And you shall not take a woman as a rival wife to her sister, uncovering her nakedness while her sister is still alive. Here we have a further list of people with whom it would be inappropriate and sinful to pursue a sexual relationship. A man isn't to marry his sister or his granddaughter or his aunt or his niece or his daughter-in-law, etc. He isn't to marry them, nor is he to have sex with them. Now, in verse 16, he is told not to marry his brother's wife. But then there is an exception to that mentioned in Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 to 10, in the situation where the brother has died and the wife has not had a child who would inherit the family land. In that case, the brother should marry the wife, the widow of his late brother, so as to produce children for his brother. So we would say here that a man is not to marry a woman who divorced his brother, but in certain circumstances he might marry his brother's widow. Interestingly, this played a role in the death of John the Baptist, who criticized Herod for marrying the wife of his brother Philip, who was still alive. In verse 18, a man is told that he cannot marry a woman and her sister. Of course, Jacob did that, and by so doing, illustrated the wisdom of this commandment. Jacob's family was racked with jealousy, bitterness, and rivalry, but the fact that he did reminds us that there are stages in the story of redemption. Abraham and his children and grandchildren didn't have the law. The law was added later. The emphasis in the Abrahamic narrative is on the development of faith 
and faith comes first. Abraham married his sister. Jacob married two sisters, but they lived before the law was given, and so they're not condemned in Scripture for not obeying laws which had not been given yet. Now, perhaps a word should be said about the explicit nature of this entire section of the Bible. There's a lot of sex and nakedness in this chapter. Is that appropriate? R.K. Harrison says here, The explicit nature of the passage reflects the unselfconscious attitude of the Hebrews, and indeed of all ancient Near Eastern peoples, towards sexual activity. Closed quote. Frankly, I think we'd be better off if we developed a similar mentality. By all means, let's have nothing to do with crude or crass jokes, but I think we have done great harm to people by treating sex as something unmentionable in the church. The Bible talks a lot about sex, never in a joking manner, never in a crass manner, but always in a frank manner. Sex is part of life. Engaged in appropriately, it is a great blessing and a great kindness. Engaged in inappropriately, it brings terrible harm to families and to people, particularly to women and children. So let's get over our prudish Victorian sensibilities and let's talk honestly and biblically about sex. I think that would actually be quite helpful in the church over the long haul. Verse 19, you shall not approach a woman to uncover her nakedness while she is in her menstrual uncleanness. Now, this verse tends to be understood in a slightly different way when compared to everything else that's been said in the section. So, Robert Gagnon, for example, says here, reflecting upon the entire group of prohibitions in verses 6 to 23, he says, These prohibitions continue to have universal validity in contemporary society. Only the prohibitions against having sexual intercourse with a woman in her menstrual uncleanness does not. Closed quote. So adultery is still bad, incest is still bad, homosexuality, which we're going to talk about in just a minute, is still bad. But this one in verse 19 is no longer bad. Why is that? And the answer seems to be that this prohibition has to do with ritual as opposed to moral law. Meaning this isn't a forbidden union. This is a law about sex between a man and his wife. And it has to do specifically with a period of ritual uncleanness that we discussed already back in chapter 15. A woman was ceremonially unclean for seven days from the start of her period. And if her husband came into contact with her fluids by having sex with her in that time, he too would be ceremonially unclean for the whole seven days. He would then need to undergo certain purifying rituals. So this is a prohibition related to ritual as opposed to moral concerns. So most theologians have argued it is no longer applicable. That isn't to say that there might not be principles of wisdom to be observed here, but it is generally not treated as a moral norm, though it is presented alongside of moral norms for obvious reasons. It has to do with sexuality. Verse 20, And you shall not lie sexually with your neighbor's wife, and so make yourself unclean with her. Adultery, obviously, was one of the Ten Commandments, so we're not surprised to see it repeated here. Gordon Wenham provides a useful definition. He says, The Old Testament definition of adultery, in common with that of other ancient societies, was rather narrower than that in the New Testament. It was defined as sexual intercourse with a married or betrothed woman by someone who was not her husband. Intercourse by a married man with an unattached 
woman, though disapproved of, was not adulterous and did not warrant the death penalty, closed quote. We'll get into the penalties associated with these various prohibitions in chapter 20. Verse 21 here goes on to say, You shall not give any of your children to offer them to Moloch, and so profane the name of your God, I am the Lord. Now, at first glance, this commandment seems out of place. We've mostly been talking about sex and marriage, but then again, sex and marriage tend to lead to children. And so, actually, putting a commandment here about the care for children makes a fair bit of sense particularly given the environment that the Israelites were walking into. The New International Commentary on the Old Testament says helpfully here, the charred bones of children found in a temple near Ammon, destroyed at about the time of the conquest, show that the pre-Israelite inhabitants of the land practiced child sacrifice, closed quote. We don't know as much about that as we'd like to know, but it is clear from texts like this that it was happening and that God was very concerned that the practice not be adopted by his own people when they entered the land. Children were a gift and were to be treasured as such. Verse 22. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. And you shall not lie with any animal, and so make yourself unclean with it. Neither shall any woman give herself to an animal to lie with it. It is perversion. These two prohibitions are put together because they represent particularly egregious violations of natural boundaries and order. Each prohibition is punctuated at the end with a word which intends to communicate that. Verse 22 says that a man is not to lie with a man as he would with a woman because that is an abomination. Robert Gagnon defines the Hebrew word to'eva as a particularly revolting and conspicuous violation of boundaries established by God against the defiling behavior characteristic of other peoples, closed quote. The Strong's Hebrew and Chaldee Dictionary of the Old Testament defines tevel, translated here as perversion, as that which is unnatural or confusion, closed quote. The Apostle Paul manifests a similar understanding in Romans 1, 26-27, he says, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Likewise, Jude, the brother of Jesus, in Jude verse 7, says, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So, homosexuality in the Bible is understood as extremely unnatural. That which is natural is that which accords with design. God made them male and female and said, be fruitful and multiply. Homosexual intercourse, therefore, represents confusion, and the unnatural crossing of clearly established boundaries. Now, I suppose this is a good time to ask a question that gets asked whenever we start reading these Old Testament laws. And the question is this, is the Old Testament law now abolished? Thomas R. Schreiner answers the question this way. He says, 
If by the Old Testament law we mean the laws in the covenant established with Moses, then the answer is yes, since Paul clearly teaches that Christians are no longer under the law covenant instituted under Moses, closed quote. However, that is not to say that the moral norms of the Old Testament are not the moral norms of the New Testament. They are. Now, I realize that's a bit confusing. The Mosaic law as a covenant has expired, and these laws are constituent parts of that covenant. But the moral laws in the Mosaic covenant are understood as bigger and more eternal than the Mosaic covenant, meaning the moral laws are reflections of God's unchanging character. They are codified and expressed in the Mosaic law, and in that form have passed away with the Mosaic law, but they continue to be operative as moral norms in the New Testament. David Dorsey is helpful here. He says that the entire Mosaic law is abolished, but it continues to be binding in a revelatory and pedagogical sense, closed quote. So revelatory in that it reveals God's character. It, it tells us what behavior he approves of and disapproves of, and pedagogical, which means teaching or instructive. So Leviticus 18 teaches us that God does not approve of adultery, incest, bestiality, or homosexuality. So obviously in the New Testament church, even though the Mosaic covenant as such is no longer binding on us as a covenant, we are of course very eager to do all that which pleases the Lord. The moral norms are thus retained, but extracted, as it were, from their Mosaic covenantal context. So, as a case study, consider the situation we already referred to in 1 Corinthians 5. A man is having sex with his stepmother, his father's wife. We presume not his biological mother, but his stepmother. Either way, according to Leviticus 18, it was a prohibited form of sexual behavior, and so Paul demands immediate action. So obviously, he considers these moral norms to still be in effect as moral norms. But interestingly, he does not command the Corinthians to execute the man engaged in incest, as the Mosaic Covenant would have them do. We'll talk about that when we get to Leviticus 20. Rather, he says, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Close quote. That's 1 Corinthians 5, 4 to 5. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 13 goes on to say, expel the wicked person from among you. So, execution has become excommunication. Same moral norm, same eternal law, but slightly different application here, because the church is no longer a nation as it was in the Old Testament. Rather, the church exists now inside every tribe, tongue, and nation on planet Earth. All right, so moral norms are retained. The application of those norms and the enforcing of those norms, though, is different. We'll do an excursus episode on the Christian and the law at the conclusion of this series because it's a huge topic. It's complicated, as you can clearly see, and it is the source of a number of current and ongoing discussions in the Christian church. So we need to say more about that than we have time to do here in our commentary on this chapter. All right, let's jump back into Leviticus 18. Here at the end of the chapter, we have a paragraph of summary and warning, beginning at verse 24. 
Do not make yourself unclean by any of these things, for by all these the nations I am driving out before you have become unclean. And the land became unclean, so that I punished its iniquity, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. But you shall keep my statutes and my rules, and do none of these abominations, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For the people of the land who were before you did all of these abominations, so that the land became unclean, lest the land vomit you out when you make it unclean, as it vomited out the nation that was before you. For everyone who does any of these abominations, the persons who do them shall be cut off from among their people. So keep my charge never to practice any of these abominable customs that were practiced before you, and never to make yourselves unclean by them. I am the Lord, your God. So as I mentioned above, keeping these laws and respecting these prohibitions is related to Israel's life and permanent possession of the land. If they live God's way, then they can enjoy God's blessings in the land. But if they don't, if they begin to adopt the sexual values and practices of their neighbors, then the land will vomit them out. Interestingly, the text here says that this is true not just for Israel as God's covenant people, but for all people generally. Look at verse 28. Lest the land vomit you out when you make it unclean, as it vomited out the nation that was before you. So there seems to be a sense here that when a nation begins to flagrantly disregard the most obvious aspects of natural law, they summon the curse upon themselves as a nation. They forfeit their right to their own land. That seems to be the idea. Jewish scholar Baruch Levine makes that very point in the JPS Torah Commentary. He says, exile is punishment for an abhorrent way of life, not only as regards Israel, but also for all other nations. So, for example, until the prior inhabitants of Canaan reach the limit of their sinfulness, the Israelite cannot occupy their land, and the fulfillment of God's promise of Genesis 15:16 must be delayed. And they shall return here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete, closed quote. So that's another reminder that though these laws as codified in the Mosaic Covenant are abrogated, the moral norms they represent are binding on all people everywhere, and people and nations disregard them at their peril. These moral norms tell us about the forms of sexuality that lead to life happiness, and flourishing, and also about the forms and expressions of sexuality that lead to unhappiness, death, and exile. And therefore, we would be very wise to pay attention to what we've heard. Thanks be to God. Thank you, friends, for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you're interested in additional resources or previous episodes and series, you can find those at intotheword.ca. You can also connect with Pastor Paul and other Bible readers on the Into the Word Facebook page. Just type Into the Word into the search bar. If you'd like to contribute to this listener-supported program, go to the website and click the Give bar in the top right corner. Once again, that's intotheword.ca. We hope to see you again real soon right here for another episode of Into the Word. Thank you.